Testing Testing is brought to you by Epigram, an AI-powered grading tool. When I taught classics, grading was tough, so I co-founded Epigrammer to give my best feedback once and repurpose it everywhere. With this podcast, I hope you'll test some of your assumptions about what it means to get an education. How do you spread what you know? Encyclopedia Britannica recently celebrated its 250th birthday in 2018, and if you search online for its entry on university, somewhere in that entry, you'll find the following. The earliest American institutions of higher learning were the four-year colleges of Harvard, 1636, William and Mary, 1693, Yale, 1701, Princeton, 1746, and Columbia, 1754. Quinn and I attended that last one, which we'll get back to in a moment, but it's worth noting that the first edition of Encyclopedia Britannica wasn't published until 1768. The title page reads, Encyclopedia Britannica, or a Dictionary of Arts and Sciences Compiled Upon a New Plan. And that new plan entailed not only providing a quick search guide for general reference material, but also with over 40 academic treatises included, specialized instruction in most subjects. That edition was such a success that it was republished in London in 1773, so that same year, why did Alexander Hamilton apply to Columbia? Quinn and I took some of the same classes in college, so I asked her a slightly different version of that question. Quinn, did you learn more from music humanities or reading sheet music? That's a tough one. All right, did you learn more from music humanities or frontiers of science? Maybe frontiers of science? As a music major, I had already studied the history of Western music, so that requirement was less challenging. But didn't Babbitt and Bach inspire you to compose that awesome music for our intro? Funny, but a lot of studying music is about writing four-part chorales in the hopes that the fundamental knowledge will lead you to be able to compose anything you want. But what if you don't know what you want? then you should get an education in music. That sounds good, but here's a case against education. This week, Testing Testing spoke with Dr. Brian Kaplan, a professor of economics at George Mason University and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, about his most recent book, The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. Thanks for inviting us to George Mason, Dr. Kaplan. Thanks so much for coming out here. We began this episode by considering the advent of the oldest English language general knowledge encyclopedia, which was published several decades after colonial colleges were founded. But what were some of your motivations in probing the American education system? Well, since I was five years old and I first started kindergarten, education has been confusing to me because you look at what's being taught and it seems like you're never going to need to know it again. And if you ask adults, why do I have to learn all this stuff? Well, so that you can get a good job. And you say, hmm, well, that seems true. Like I, all the adults with good jobs have jumped through all these educational hoops. But then like, why? Why do employers care about it? And uh, in this book, I bring together all the evidence for what I think is the best explanation for all of this, which is that even the material that you are never going to use on the job, that it will never appear after the final exam, uh, doing well on that still is a very good way of convincing employers that you are worthy of being hired. It's a way of getting certification. You get stickers on your forehead from your education, jump through a bunch of hoops. And the story then is that's the reason why it pays. And that's uh, you know a, b- a big part of the motivation for the book is just to resolve these mysteries that have puzzled me for as long as I can remember about the very industry in which I work. I know in your introduction, you also note that you were highly educated as a graduate of UC Berkeley and Princeton's PhD program in economics, but are there moments that you can remember, at least anecdotally, in the book? I know you mentioned something like memorizing state capitals in grade school, but (laughs) where your graduate training was superfluous to your career as an economist? 
Sure. I mean, I can just go straight to my the first year of my PhD program in economics, which outsiders might assume is very vocational, but actually they're teaching this very high-level theory, general equilibrium theory, for example, which the vast majority of students will never use again, actually. You know, most students go on and they become empirical researchers. They don't go and sit around proving theorems. And yet the first year was just proving one theorem after another. And again, like you would say, well, there's got to be some use to it. Like it winds up going into the empirics. Like, no. Hardly ever. Like, like, then why do they make you do it? And the honest answer is because their teachers made them do it. And so on, like going, going, going back to the least, least 1950s when this material first appeared. So I mean, the, the, uh, to me, that was very vivid is even when you think that you're being trained in this very narrow field, even then the, so much of the material is not relevant, especially in the first year classes. Second year, finally, you start getting into something that you might actually use one day. Right, so you know that that very much uh, stayed in my mind. Uh, let's see, in terms of uh, you know like, like you know, so that's graduate school. In terms of, of undergraduate, uh, you know, you know, so you know, like so many required classes that like you just just had to go through. So usually, I mean, I will say uh, that nice thing about college is that even the requirements are usually flexible enough that you can go and find something you don't truly resent. So I don't have that much PTSD from college. I mean, most of it comes from, for me, comes from, uh, especially K, you know, you know, K through twelve, especially junior and high school. So again, you know, like the three years of Spanish that I took was just a nightmare. You know, spent, you know, the last, the last one, the last year of Spanish, Spanish three, we were required to go and write and then recite from memory a five minute speech once per month. Right. And like I would just sit there desperately memorizing this thing for days beforehand and then get up there and I'd always volunteer first before it slipped from my memory. And, you know, like it was just this horrible experience. I'm like, I'm not learning any Spanish. How does memorizing a five minute speech in Spanish teach you Spanish? And you're not allowed to have any notes. Oh, God, no. And again, you realize, look, they're just creating some meaningless uh, hoops for you to jump through just so they can say that you they gave you some work and fill the time. Quinn, did you take any classes that you thought were a total waste of time? Yeah, of course. One thing I always thought was particularly funny is that by the time I was in high school, neither of my parents had any idea what my math homework was. They could barely read the questions, and they both turned out just fine in adulthood. They just don't remember calculus or geometry. However, I will say that my sister and I are pursuing almost opposite paths. She's studying biophysics in grad school, whereas I'm pursuing music and writing. So a lot of the classes that in hindsight aren't going to make much of a difference to me were probably quite important to her. Fair enough. But you majored in classics, so I know you took classes that wasted your time. You know the word for music comes from the ancient Greek musa, right? Sure. Well, more on that later, but speaking of classes you took back in high school, I did ask Dr. Kaplan to speak a bit more about the transfer of learning. So again, the idea of transfer of learning is uh, that you know, like, like very, you know, very often you learn one narrow subject, but then there is a hope that teachers have that though the subject was narrow, the application will be broad. So as in the slogans, you know, learning how to think or learning how to learn or teaching critical thinking. So there's all you know, this hope that if you just go and teach students history, this will then improve their ability to do policy analysis or they'll become better voters or whatever. Uh, and so. Uh, in the you know and you know and strangely actually, uh, it's my fellow economists who often start making these arguments when I point out how unrelated to the real to real life most of what you learn in school is, and that's when they go, oh well, sure it may seem that it's not really related, but it's totally related just by through these circuitous channels. And this is where I say, you know, that sounds like a psychological claim, not really an economic one. And I realize there is a field called 
psychology, which evaluates these claims, and they have. They've been working on this for 100 years, the subfield of educational psychology. And unlike The Economist, the educational psychologists are very pessimistic after running a lot of experiments and looking at a lot, a lot of other kinds of evidence, come away saying it looks like normally the best case scenario is that the student learns the, precisely what they're taught, and that's it. And of course, you know, like more commonly, they don't even learn that or they forget a lot of it. But, you know, the idea that you can go and teach someone history and this will improve their understanding of almost anything is just wishful thinking, according to the people that really measure this stuff. Well, Mike, you must be pretty glad you spent all that time as a kid watching the History Channel. (laughs) First off, it was an entirely different channel back then. Sure. But I'll tell you what, my grandfather watches the Curse of Oak Island, and just because they don't find the treasure most of the time doesn't mean it never happens. I'm sorry, but what does that have to do with the transfer of learning? I'm saying just because it doesn't usually happen doesn't mean it never happens, but I'll let Dr. Kaplan elaborate. It's measuring what normally happens. It does not mean... That transfer never occurs, and obviously it does occur. Like, like, you know, we all know someone who actually does successfully take an idea from one field and apply it to another, and I think a lot of what I'm doing in this book is actually that. It's just realizing that this is one, one of the rarest things in the world. It's not, doesn't, it is not natural. It is an unnatural thing to learn one subject and then say, hey, do you know this thing in economics? It explains something in a totally different area. But I do try to do this, and you know, like a lot of this is going, you know, going out of my way to really try to read a lot of different areas, and also, you know, looking for the connections. So, I mean, so much of successful transfer really, really can be achieved with a lot of concentration and hyper and uh, hyper awareness and, and and self-awareness. But again, like this is just a very rare thing for a human being to do. People usually are like focused on the superficial level. But you know, like I so like one one of the ways that, that what's interesting about this transfer of of uh, learning literature is when you read the experiments, you might say, well look, the reason why people are failing is the questions are too hard. No human being could do this. It's not you might say this isn't about transfer. It's about you're asking the impossible of people. But the people running the experiments actually know better. So what they do is they actually will do a variance. So one group, you'll go and you'll, you know, so in both cases, you teach them subject A. And then one group, you go and say, now use what I taught you in section A to solve these problems in section B. And the other group, you just give them problem, the, the, the section B. And what you see is that telling them to use what they learned in the first section on the second section dramatically improves the performance. So it's not that the that it's intellectually hard to do. It's just that people don't think to go and connect to subjects that seem so different from each other. So like math, one's math, one's physics. You know, but if you say use the math that you learned to solve the physics problems, oh yeah. But if you just say here's some math, okay, now here's some physics. Even there, you might think it's that you're like you've totally led the witness, but it's not leading them enough to make it common, actually. Ooh, so there is hope for my music career. Do you want to hear an example of one of my corrals? We're trying to review the case against education, not add to it. But how many bars would you hear if I only played E and G? Please don't play it again. I wonder if your inability to answer has anything to do with why some students struggle with word problems. Seriously, Dr. Kaplan told me that much about a study which used math and physics. Yeah, this was an experiment where they either taught, I believe, you know, so the, like the math of con- the, you know, so the, the math of arithmetic progression and the physics of constant acceleration, or they did it in the reverse order, right? So there's two groups: one one learns the math, then the physics; one learns the physics and then the math, and then they measured to see whether learning the first subject improved your learning of the second. And the punchline of the study was that math and physics 
did actually lead to some transfer. Physics, then math, on the other hand, did not. So, you know, like, if you teach someone the general theory and then give them a specific application, they seem to get something out of that. But teach them the specific application and then ask them to induce what the general theory is, then, you know, like, even very smart kids still are like, what? Oh, I don't know where to start. Or, like, they don't even realize what you're asking of them. And you also use terms like usefulness or uselessness, but... As you also mentioned in the book, there are some practitioners who use terms like human capital. So if you wouldn't mind, could you recapitulate your definition of utility? Yeah. So again, like the, the, you know, the two, there's two main stories about why education raises your earnings, why it causes your earnings to go up. And you know, one of them is the signaling story that I've been putting forward that you jump through hoops and it impresses employers and they like you and they, and they treat you better as a result. But the, the other story, the conventional one, is that you go into school and they pour some skills into you. And again, of course, that this is true to some extent. You learn literacy and numeracy in school. Those are useful skills. So I don't deny it. It's all a question of what is the numerical breakdown between human capital and signaling. Now, in terms of you know, how, I, how I define usefulness, you know, it's a third, third request for a definition. So you know, you know, what, I, what, I, so what I say in the book specifically is you know, education does not have to be useful. It does not have to be inspiring, but it should be at least one of the two. All right. So if it is neither useful nor inspiring or neither useful nor enjoyable, that's when I say when I will say that it's wasteful. Now, what do I mean by useful? Well, primarily the primary one I'm thinking of is that you would use it on the job. Although, you know, like, you know, if you like there's if you would go and use it somewhere outside of the job, then it could be useful for that reason. Again, you know, like for most of the things that you learn in school, it's so implausible that you would use it uh, outside of the job that it's natural to focus on the job. So, you know, like, bio, like you know, if you're doing biology or something like, all right, I can imagine a job where you use biology, but when would you use biology out, like, like, like just like in your daily life? I guess you might be gardening or something, or, and, you know, again, like if you had a fantastic biology class, you might be using it for assessing nutritional claims, although, you know, that would be so, that, that would be so rare. Uh, but yeah, so, but essentially, you know, so yes, you know, you, useful, though I do acknowledge that's the principle, like something you learn in school could be, uh, you could use it, uh, like, you know, like for repairing your shower or something like that. But again, normally I am thinking about using it on, on a job because that is the primary way that I think people think about the usefulness is one day an employer will require this of you. And again, just realizing that for so much of what you study in school, uh, that is a extreme long shot, unless of course you become a teacher of the very subject. Yeah, seeming like, you know, a nice analogy for understanding human capital versus signaling is this. There are two totally different ways to raise the market price of a diamond. One of them is to hand it to the expert gem cutter who cuts it perfectly, making it a great diamond. He changes it. He transforms the diamond. But the other thing, other way to raise the value of a diamond is to hand it over to an, to an, to an appraiser who puts that little monocle thing in his eye and says, ah, this is a beautiful diamond, flawless. And then he puts a sticker, you know, grade AAA diamond. And that causes the market price to go up too. Even though he did nothing to actually change the, uh, anything about that diamond, he might not even have touched it, actually. But, you know, these are two very different ways. And again, these are two different ways of thinking about what education is doing. One is you are actually transforming the skills of the student. The other one, though, is that you are putting stickers on the student, grade A, grade a student. And again, both of these are very, are very effective ways of raising your wage, right? So again, selfishly speaking, it doesn't really matter why. But again, from the point of view of taxpayers, on the other hand, it matters a lot because if every, you know if everyone has more skill, then everyone in the country can go and have a higher standard of living. But if everyone has more stickers, this just means you need more stickers in order to catch employers' eye. All right, I'm stuck. If school doesn't prepare us to excel in our jobs, what does? You mean besides a deep-seated fear of asking an unanswerable question? 
Yeah, and besides a superficial faith and not-so-charming banter. If you have something to say, just say it. Did you really not like my corral? It's just that we're doing an interview, and it was distracting. But you at least thought it was creative, right? Absolutely. And you could say that kind of creativity is something I couldn't teach. That sounds less like a compliment and more like a segue. Well, I wonder what sort of evidence there is for effectively teaching skills that are hard to define. Right. So I never cross, uh, came across any evidence that schools are teaching entrepreneurship or creativity. But yeah. you know, again, like maybe very specific classes are doing it. But again, so I mean, I do have the section on how people get good at their jobs, and like you know, the real evidence is people get good at their jobs through practice, learning by doing. So again, like I would think that that by far the best way to become an entrepreneur to learn entrepreneurship is to be the understudy for an entrepreneur, be like the like the personal secretary for an entrepreneur, and be like right by their side, be shadowing that entrepreneur, learning that. Kind Kind of stuff, learning the business, of course, because a big part of entrepreneurship is actually being well informed about a particular industry. I mean, you know, like someone who says, "Yeah, I know nothing about the textile industry, but I'm going to go in and entrepreneurialize it all." I mean, you know, like that's ridiculous. What you like? Step one is you learn the current methods used and why they're used, and understand why other ideas uh, that have been tried have failed, and then maybe you'll be in a position to actually improve things. Writing it for creativity, again, you might try actually shadowing a creative person and again, learning by doing. I would think those are those the effective methods. Okay, well, I can agree with Dr. Kaplan on some ideas here. I definitely wish I had had a more technical education. Like I said, I was a music major, but my degree was more centered on history, theory, and ethnomusicology, whereas for my career, I would have preferred a greater emphasis on skills like recording, production, and performance. Like an apprenticeship? Yeah, exactly. But if we assume that right now most companies hire entry-level employees based on their academic resume, then how would you enter the workforce without college? Would I just send out my resume of restaurant and babysitting jobs and hope someone would give me a chance? I had the same thought, but from an HR perspective. How would the company know they were finding the right people? And if they were hiring a lot of the wrong people, then they would have to do a lot of firing, which most companies typically don't enjoy. For the record, most employees don't enjoy it either, unless you're playing out some sort of how to lose a job in 10 days scenario. Obviously, Dr. Kaplan thought about this as well. You know, on the, on the thing you were talking about, about employers being reluctant to fire or the problems with firing. So this is actually another thing that I really got thinking about writing the book. So again, economists are sort of used to the idea that employers hire people because they because they are, they're pro, it's profitable to do so. And a corollary of this is that as soon as a worker becomes unprofitable or known to be unprofitable, they'll be fired on the spot. All right. Now, uh, in writing the book, uh, you know, first of all, I said, hmm, that sounds like false. Um, and again, like whenever I went and just asked my students, so you know, how many people here have a job? And at my school, almost everyone's got a job. All right, how many people are at a workplace where there's at least one co-author that is generally considered to be incompetent? And again, basically every hand stays in the air. Everyone is working at a job where there is some coworker considered incompetent. So then why hasn't this person been fired yet if it is general, if this is broadly known? And again, I found there is a whole literature, especially in sociology, where they study the empirics of firing. How does firing happen? Who gets fired? What determines the selection process for firing? And what's striking about this to an economist like myself is, you know, or I think also industrial psychology, another area that looks at this, um, is that you know, it, is, it is not normal to fire someone as soon as you realize that they are not worthwhile. Right, uh, you know and that they are that they are paying them more than they more than they actually produce. Uh, you know, so you know, one reason is just especially if the person is likable, this hurts morale. So like people just feel bad for the person. Like well, maybe the worker their job, but everybody likes this person. You know, like we know the person's name, we've met their kids. 
So there's that. But the other thing is it seems like there is just a basic squeamishness among employers. Many employers just would rather keep paying someone more than they're worth rather than fire them. And, you know, so, you know, now again, if it gets extreme enough, then they're likely to, but, you know, if the person is just paid 20% more than they produce, there's a lot of employers who will keep them around at least until the next recession when they feel like they've got to get rid of somebody. And then they're likely to go and get rid of the people that produce less. But anyway, the reason that I bring this up in my education book is one common objection to my whole signaling story is to say, Look, signaling can't really be very important because within a few months, employers will know if a worker, if a worker's credentials overstate their true ability. And if this happens, then employers will fire them and, and then the degree will cease to pay. And I say, yeah, well, what workplaces are you talking about that work this way? Uh, the more normal thing is someone realizes they're overpaid and they go, oh, wow, we sure made a mistake there. Wish we hadn't done that. Oh, well, too late now. Right. And, you know, like, you know, so like, you know, some economists will say well, there's regulation, which affects firing. That's true. But again, I think a lot of it is just basic human psychology that when you get to know someone, it hurts. You know, like, like, you know, so people like unlike Mr. Burns on The Simpsons, normal human employers do not like firing someone. It feels really bad to fire another person. But what this means is that you can avoid getting in this socially awkward position by not giving out chances to people that don't have good documentation. So basically what I say is that if you look down, look into the future and you say, hey, uh, am I going to be comfortable just throwing this worker away if it turns out that I've given him a chance and he doesn't, and he's not very good? No, I'm going to feel really bad about it. Well, if so, then you don't want to hand out chances very readily. And in which case you'll do the safe, the safe procedure of hiring based upon credentials rather than the more entrepreneurial one of saying, hey, you don't have credentials. I'll give you a chance. Let's see how it works out. If it doesn't, no hard feelings, but I'm going to fire you. And again, like you can say that, and yet when it come, when push comes to shove, almost everyone feels hard feelings when they're firing somebody. And on the subject of hard feelings, critics of the book might say, Professor Kaplan, you're talking about radically underfunding public education, but in your argument from the get-go, you say that you are actually concerned with the social unit, society, and how the entire system is performing. And someone has to fail, David Labory of the Stanford Graduate School of Education doubted that colleges were spreading knowledge. He wrote that, we have continually demonstrated more interest in getting a diploma than getting an education, and in reviewing the history of the American college, somewhat pejoratively used the term social institution. But on his point that we should, quote, assume that consumers, not reformers, are driving the system, end quote, could you talk more about your prescriptions in chapters 9 and 10 in particular? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I mean, of course, education is a social institution. The question is whether it is socially functional or socially dysfunctional. Uh, yeah, so... I mean, the, the two big classes of policy reforms that I talk about, the first one is cutting education spending, or what I just call educational austerity. Now, again, this flows directly out of the logic of everything that I've been saying. If you are not learning much in the way of useful skills in school, if the result of rising education is not good jobs for everyone, but rather that you keep increasing the education requirements for jobs that have always existed... If we, you know, again, basically, we have this horrible problem of credential inflation that I'm describing, and you know, almost everyone with a practical experience of the world, and like you know, for a couple decades, sees this with their own eyes. Say, well, how about we try to cause some credential deflation? How about we try to go back to a world where you could get a good job out of high school? And again, like if the reason why educational requirements have risen so much uh, on the job is that we're so educated, then we have so much education, then 
if we would go and make education less accessible, reduce funding, we reduce the education of the population, and we would correspondingly reduce the education requirements because employers can't afford to be so picky if the share of people with college degrees falls from a third to 10%. Right? So this is the big reform that I'm pushing. And again, I realize this horrifies most people. But I say, look, this flows very logically out of what I've been saying. If you agree that if everyone had a bachelor's degree, this would be pointless because then employers would just say you have to have a bachelor's degree to get a job, then you know, like, like moving, moving to a world where fewer people have bachelor's degrees, you know, this, this is basically close to a free lunch where you are just going to let people start, life at an early, uh, start their adult life at an earlier age. Um, so, you know, so that's one of the main things that I talk about, you know, like people usually just start freaking out about the effect on the poor. And again, here, here, what I say is, look, would you rather be a high school dropout looking for a job today or high school dropout looking for a job in 1950? In 1950, the stigma against high school dropouts was quite small because there were so many of them. It wasn't that, it wasn't that deviant to be a high school dropout in those days. So again, like what I'm, what I'm talking about is going back to a world where you, where there's a lot of jobs that today you need a college degree for that you don't need that anymore. And like, it seems to me that would be very good for people, for people from poor families, if we were to just go and reduce the educational snobbery of our society by reducing the average education level. So again, like you shouldn't be thinking about the, uh, what would happen if one individual dropped out of school or one individual lost funding. Think about the effects of a whole generation of reduced funding and how that just completely changes the meaning of the credential, right? And then the other thing that I talk about is vocational education, yeah. uh, which again, I say that you know, you know, there, 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 there's, there's a nice body of research on it saying that we undervalue vocational education, and this seems to be a pretty standard finding, uh, you know, that... Uh, you know, like you know, that you know, edu vocational education at minimum just exposes people to the workforce and different requirements of it. So, and it seems to raise earnings and reduce unemployment just through that. And then, of course, for people who just hate school, for kids who hate school, and there's tons of them, they don't usually write books or poems about their hatred of school, but they're there hating it, right? And kids like that. Uh, going and giving uh, and uh, and helping them to find something that is very different from sitting in a classroom listening to someone lecture, something where they get to actually go and do something practical. A lot of kids like that will like it and are good at it, and that it's a great option for them. But then, uh, from the signaling angle, that I'm pushing, it's even better because going and training and and, and training someone to do an actual practical task has more social value than having everyone learn more poetry. So then, em employers ramp up their poetry expectations for like how much poetry do you have to know in order to be worthy? Again, of course, literally, 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 like it's we're a little bit more complicated. Where you know, high school, you need poetry in high school to get into college, good college to get to get the job, but that's effectively how how it, how it plays out. I'm going to be honest with you, Mike. As a semi-recent college graduate, I'm not sure how to feel about all this. Well, Dr. Kaplan acknowledges that we are getting what we want out of college, but he adds a very specific caveat. So the, the deep lesson of, of my book is this. Students right now are getting what they want out of education. They're getting more money and better careers. And that's what they actually care about, uh, you know, like, like, like overwhelmingly. You know, like, you know, and then, you know, what's striking, even if you ask students what are the main things they're here for, more money and better career are the top answers by far. And this is what people admit. Of course, if they admit this, just imagine how focused they are on this stuff. They just, you know, like, like, you know, for most students, learning is just not very important to them as long as they get the money. 
So there's, I say there's just not very much. You know, so even though there's a very competitive system of higher education in the United States, the competition is not about learning because the students are not shopping around for the place that teaches them most stuff. They're just shopping around for getting, you know, you know like whatever will give me the, like, you know, the most money, the best job, right? And then, of course, you know, like the, you know, the most fun campus experience too. That's something that people think about as well. So, you know, I would just say I'm not optimistic at all about the system reforming itself because the students right now are basically getting what they want. The parents are getting what they want because, you know, like, you know, as long as their kid gets a good job out of graduation, the parents don't actually care very much whether their students, whether the kids are learning very much. And again, the professors, uh, since, you know, they're not, they, as you said, they're, they're, they're paid very little for good teaching, right? So, you know, like the main way the professor advances his career is by research. So, I mean, they, they, you know, there's no incentive to the professor to go and try to raise standards or otherwise teach better. It's just, basically, it's just going to be more work for the professor. So my mind, you know, the system is very stable. Like, you know, so I think, you know, like, I think it's, it's very, it's, you know, it's quite locked in. You know, like I'm open to the possibility of marginal changes or I mean, like a modest decline in enrollment as the internet comes up with some alternatives. But again, the idea that there's going to be any fundamental change in 20 years or 50 years, I think is, is quite, quite unlikely. But looking ahead 50 years, it's easy to forget how much things have changed in the last 50 years. I mean, let's not forget that I couldn't have taken classes with you or Alexander Hamilton at Columbia College until in 1983. True, but I also think the case against education achieves what you're supposed to achieve whenever you're getting education, which is to challenge yourself. One of the challenges I had when reading the case against education involved terminology, for which I fault the field of economics more than the author. When I took Principles of Economics at Columbia, I remember reading somewhere that economics is the study of choice under conditions of scarcity. But there is this whole school of thought, no pun intended, that views education as a choice unconcerned with scarcity. I think a teacher like Socrates expressed this well in playful dialogues with his students, but even the ancient Greek verb paduin, meaning to educate, was fundamentally connected to the ancient Greek noun for child or pais. My mom also used to run a daycare out of our house, and I can assure you, None of those kids cared about how much food was left after they left. I'm sure you'd like to define economics as well. I'll save that for next time with Dr. Helen Ladd. But for now, how about you play us out with a chorale? Really? You mean it? You know, the word chorale comes from the ancient Greek word for chorus, right? Oh, Mike, no one cares! In that case, tune in next time for part two on our series of correspondences on the economics of education. To learn more about guests on Testing Testing, visit us at testingtesting.fm. There, you will find... Wait, this is the grand finale! Okay, go ahead. Like I was saying, you will find helpful links to episodes released each week on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to comment on an episode or correct the record in some way as well, write our team at writingwriting at testingtesting.fm. That first writing starts with an R. But for now, pencils down. <laughs>